Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Eric Hulkern. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. On this episode, John Heiner has an announcement he'd like to make, so it's just he and I. So sit back and enjoy this next episode of Behind the Headlines. So let's jump into it. My co-host and guest this week, as always, Vice President of Content, John Heiner. John, how are you today? Man, I'm nervous. I hope I don't get screw this up, Eric. <laughs> you normally ask me. You normally ask you how how I'm doing. Uh, well, I you know I want to get right down to business. I want to not only know how you're doing, but I want to know uh, you know what we're doing. We're we're making an announcement this week, and um, it, it's important. And I, I want to unpack it, but first I want to allow you to kind of explain what the announcement is, sure. and and maybe some of the the thought process behind it. Absolutely, and. You know how I, but I will go back to how I'm doing because this has been a crazy week in the news, the news headlines, um, the the tenor, you know, civil discourse went out the window a while ago. Uh, it's been a crazy summer with the, you know, the executive orders and COVID and the, the backlash against that, and uh, we had the Supreme Court ruling a week or so ago that invalidated apparently all of the emergency powers that the governor has. And there's been so many protests against her that, you know, that was met with some celebration in some quarters, but it also just had, we had just had a ton of confusion. And then the news broke this past week about a plot from militia members to kidnap, uh, try like a trial and possibly execute our governor. And this was treated as a credible threat by the FBI, Michigan state police, and, you know, other authorities. And, you know, there were more than a dozen arrests um, they, they uncovered the weapons. They said they, they tested bombs. They had cased out the governor's, um, summer home, incre- had encrypted messages. This was a real credible threat. This falls under terrorism, you know, domestic terrorism. And all of a sudden it's like, how much more can we ratchet up the, you know, the, the pot, how much can the pot boil more than it is right now in America? And so this isn't the reason for the announcement I'm going to make here, but it, it really factors into where we're at as a culture and society. And, you, and all the norms of a normal election cycle have gone out the window. I think 2016 put a stake into that in, in what's happened since 2016. Um, what used to be the norms for an election cycle, uh, even ones where the outcome wasn't clear, have gone out the window. So MLive's taken an introspective look at the things we do and the things we do best. And so what I'm announcing in the column this week and on this podcast is that for the 2020 election, MLive is not going to make an endorsement in the presidential election. And that, that's, a pretty big, yeah. that's a pretty big departure for, for newspapers. And I still call us newspapers because we have eight newspapers and our, our, our DNA is in newspapers. But we're just not going to make an endorsement this year. And so let me ask you a question before you go any further is... In the column, it talks about this tradition of newspapers 
you know, endorsing a candidate. Uh, and I'm wondering, could you give us some historical perspective of maybe where that came from? Because, you know, when you think about journalism, you think about the lens by which you help communities view the world and then picking one candidate over another seems like it might be even in a different category. So I'm wondering where did that come from? Why is it a tradition? And obviously I understand the departure from it this year, but I'm wondering where it even came from. Sure. There's a couple pieces of this, and one is historic, and the other is sort of practical. I'll do the historic one first. Uh, newspapering in America, if you go back to like pamphleteering by Ben Franklin, uh, the power, if you had a press and you could reproduce written material, and you, Ben Franklin wasn't competing against the internet, TV, radio, podcasts, you know, these things, if you could get a pamphlet out, that carried a lot of power over public opinion. And pamphleteers used either, you know, satire or, you know, they, they, the thing about Ben Franklin that was kind of interesting is he always used, uh, you know, anonymous bylines yes. or yes. He, he used pseudonyms, you know, the you know, Molly Goodfork or whatever to go after somebody. But he, it was so because there, there were repercussions for taking on power. Um, but there, there was a lot of power in satire. There was a lot of power in these pamphlets and opinion back then. And, you know, if you look at the names of some newspapers, like there's still newspapers named the Democrat or the, the Republican. Yes. And newspapers were a tool. They were a cudgel. They were they they were used to influence uh, government affairs and societal thinking. And they didn't make any bones about being biased. Um, they back in the day the, the history of newspapers of this we, we argue what's objectivity or neutrality. That's a fairly new phenomenon in the history of newspapers. Um, it, most papers had more than one paper, or excuse me, most cities had more than one paper. Some had, you know, six or eight newspapers. Uh, the Workers' Party had a paper, you know. The, <laughs> right, yeah. There were, I mean, in the Jewish News and the Black newspaper. And so they usually represented certain points of view and they catered to their audiences. It was a matter of economics and newspapering that in the 20th century, the, the mid to late 20th century, we started to see more objectivity because one newspaper town sprang up and it just became economically more feasible uh, if you were a newspaper and you wanted the largest possible audience to try to represent all points of view and to be a little more neutral in your news coverage. And the phenomenon of unbiased, impartial reporting of the facts is probably the last third of the history of newspapers in America. And part of that, I think, was the development of industries and professional standards and ethics and the craft of newspapering and objective reporting. And the other is just economic, is why alienate half of your community? Right. And so that so, said, yeah, that said, what papers recognized in an era when their only competition was radio and TV and TV was nascent for most of that period is to be an 80% of the households in a community gave you a, a unprecedented power over opinion and thought, um, how the news was presented, what was on the front page. And every paper had a robust editorial section. Most papers had editorial opinions every single day of the week. On Sunday, they'd you know have a bunch and they'd have columnists and they use these pages uh, to spread influence, to use their influence in the community over community affairs, hold people accountable, uh, say, we're not going away, we're not letting up, this is what you know we demand. And it gave a lot of power to publishers and editors in communities to have an agenda 
that still didn't interfere with their news coverage because I've been in newsrooms for almost 40 years and the editorial or opinion department was always separate from the, the editors who made decisions about news coverage. And so, you know, here we are in 2020, we've made the decision we are not going to endorse a candidate. But at the same time, in your, your piece, you talk about this piece that we're going to be putting out to help people navigate through this election. Can you talk a little bit about that part of it? Sure. I think the piece you're referring to is our vote411.org voter guide, which we do in conjunction with the League of Women's Voters. We've had a relationship with them for several election cycles where we collect, we and the League of Women Voters uh, get go out and find all the candidates and the candidates' campaigns, and we put to them the most pressing issues. We put questions to them about the most pressing issues that are facing uh, either government, society, um, you know, personal rights and all these things. And we get the government stand, or excuse me, we get the candidate stand on each issue and we, we put it in an easy to read format so that people can make their own decision reading the candidate's own words on their stands. Anybody who watched the debate between uh, President Trump and Joe Biden knows it was completely useless if you wanted to walk yeah. away with new information about issues to help you make up your mind. This voter guide strips away a lot of that heated rhetoric and the you know, yelling and shouting and name calling, and it lets you at your own pace digest that. So we have it in online format. Um, that's free. Um, you can go to that and we can please put the link in the show notes uh, for that voter guide. A printed version of that voter guide will come out in the October 18th Sunday newspapers uh, for home delivery people. That's just a part of your paper at the newsstand there's going to be a premium for that newspaper because there's also a, just coincidentally, a guide for uh, Medicare plans. It's open enrollment season for Medicare. So there's a, there's a guide to help people with that. So there's a premium price at the newsstand, but it's online for free and home delivery customers of ours will get that as well. And it has local races through state races all the way up to the presidential races. So, John, the, the next obvious question for me is, is you say this year, you started by saying this year we're not going to endorse a candidate. Do you see, if you're looking in your crystal ball, do you see a time where newspapers or specifically our newspapers get back to endorsing a candidate? Or is this, do you think that ship has sailed and we are in this form of political rhetoric for however long this season lasts? I think that ship got torpedoed and sank. <laughs> you know, fair I, enough. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking like divers sometime may go, uh, you know, antiquity divers may go check it out. But I think that era is over. And I, I think the era of the internet, a couple of things happened with the era of the internet. It made everybody a publisher. It broke all the news cycles. You know, what we used to do is we, this is, Eric, you may not believe this. And I worked at medium size. I didn't even look at work at the huge newspapers. But starting in mm, August of an election year, we were meeting with candidates for every single office, city council, county commission, state representative, all the way up to, you know, occasionally I've, I've met all the governors, the last five or six governors of Michigan. I've been in the room with them. Um, presidential candidates come through town and they'd meet with our editorial boards. Um, we went all the way down to drain commissioner. I mean, I, I don't think I ever did a dog catcher, but I did do drain commissioners. And we would listen to them and we, we would pitch hard questions at them and we would talk about their fitness for the job. We took it very seriously. 
And then, you know, from August on, we would start publishing our endorsements, even in the primary elections, for people that we thought would best represent the people's interests. And, you know, there's a there's an old joke that I would hear from a reader invariably every time. It's like, when are your endorsements going to come out? So I know, uh, you know, I'm going to vote for whoever you're <laughs> against. Sure. Yeah. You know, they, they use our endorsement and vote the other way. That was their joke. But the fact is, we did a lot of the work and got access to candidates that regular people never got. So we could ask hard questions and hold them accountable, which journalists should do. The piece that we added on was we're going to tell you what we think, you know, whether you use that or not the ballot box. And we felt that that was an essential part of our community service. Well, there's a couple of things that happened. One, you know, in our industry, uh, there was a lot of fracturing that has happened since about 2007 on where we just don't have the resources. We don't have those editorial uh, and opinion departments that can schedule and do all that, those meetings. We started pairing it back so that it was only the most important races. And then as even as we were getting to 2016, our capacity to do it, our bandwidth got smaller. But number two, the internet starts showing us that anyone who had access to the internet was a publisher. And most people who wanted to publish on the internet wanted to publish opinion because doing news reporting is time consuming, takes expertise, and it, it's generally, it doesn't burn as hot as a, as a hot take. Yes, 100%. Right, right. And so, you know, I had an, I've, I've had an old, you know, I said any, you know, not everybody could be Da Vinci and do the Mona Lisa, but anybody with a Sharpie can draw a mustache on the Mona Lisa and get a laugh. And that's what the internet is. Uh, but the internet, uh, it turned a turn, took a darker turn when the 2016 elections, we all know now, with intervention by foreign actors, disinformation campaigns, suppress voter suppression tactics, and all these things. And, you know, I think 2016 is the last time there are going to be papers that endorse in this election. I'm already starting to see them. I think that it's kind of pointless. And I have a number of reasons that I articulate in the column why I think that's so. I think the social media has taken on such a predominant role in our day-to-day conversations, number one. And number two, I think everybody who's listening will see this in their, their private lives, is people tune out. It's hard to open a mind. It's hard to change a mind. It's hard to have civil discourse. I mean, to sit and actually talk through issues without somebody racing to, you know, um, you know, MAGA or you're bad, you know, you're, you're a fascist or, or, or whatever. Um, I, I think the polls have showed repeatedly this year that because the people will poll in the spring and they come back and poll the same people in the fall, nobody's changing their mind. And it really is going to boil down to voter turnout, who's motivated to vote and that sort of thing. So we did find in 2016, it was, it was unprecedented. I've never seen this in the industry almost every single major newspaper in the United States endorsed the same candidate happened to be Hillary Clinton. And everybody knows how that turned out. And it's not so much about being right or winning. It's the, the idea that as every paper was rushing to say, you know, Trump is, you know, it's an abomination or he's going to be a clown or look at this guy's, you know, credentials. He's sure. not qualified to be president. Um, and point out what seemed obvious. We missed the bigger story, which is more than half of America's or half of America was supporting this guy. That was the story that newspapers, you know, should have put some resources into reporting and to figure out that phenomenon and explain that. 
and, and open everybody's eyes to what was happening around us. And I think it, it really showed the value or the lack of value of institutional opinion when there was a sea change happening around us. And so the, the question I will leave you with when you speak of sea change is, and this might be a completely unfair question, but given our friendship, I feel like I can ask a question like this and, and see how you'll respond is when you're looking at a big moment in history, when you don't know it's a big moment in history, everything feels like it's got more weight to it. So you're hearing a lot of hyperbole around this particular election being the most important election in American history. I'm just going to softball that one to you. In your opinion, with your knowledge of election cycles and candidates and the, the, you know, the tide of history, if you will, do you think that's fair or even possible to say before it happens? And what is your thoughts when people are saying that this is the most important election? I think it's hard to see a forest when you're standing right up against the trees, you know? I mean, everybody wants to believe that their, their area, their generation's exceptional, their times are unique. And there's a quote that I've used a lot over my life. I heard it was from Paul Harvey. I can't believe I'm quoting Paul Harvey. Well, we are, we are here for the rest of the story, so continue. <laughs> right, and that's the rest of the story. Um, but Paul Harvey once said, the thing to remember at times like these is that there have always been times like these. I think the election in 1860 was pretty consequential. I think the election in 1864 was pretty <laughs> consequential. I mean, you know, 1960, I mean, um, what we're, you know, and I, whether you like Trump or not, the thing I believe is Trump is not the cause, Trump's the effect. Um, what we're seeing is because of a change in American history in time and, and technology is part of it. The internet uh, has become part of it. Um, what used to be the hierarchy of information di dissemination and newspapers were pretty near the top of that pyramid. Um, we literally had everyone on the same page every day and we controlled a lot of the narrative. And you can say, was that nefarious? You know, should have been that way or whatever, but we did. There weren't a lot of outlets for alternate narratives, including conspiracy theories or whatever. The internet has opened all of that up and people can, can customize their own news feeds. They can customize their beliefs or their news feed to, to, to um, support their beliefs or their beliefs to support their newsfeed. Sure. And so for me to say, is this the most consequential? I mean, that I think the implication in that, when I hear people say that is, if Trump's elected again, the, the world's gonna end. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Um, I mean, we just, we're getting on four years under Trump and it has tested all of the checks and balances. It's tested all the levers. It's put everybody on high alert. It's made media actually examine how we do our jobs and try to do it in different and better ways. And I think it's challenged people to be better citizens. You know, one thing that's broken down, I think, is, is civil discourse. That idea of a dialectic where, you know, you know, back in the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, they had these Chautauquas where people would go for a weekend and discuss an idea and sip some, you know, beverages and come away smarter and better citizens. Uh, yeah, that, that seems a little uh, naive. I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I think that the temperature's a lot higher now. And, you know, it, the thing that I mentioned what happened this past week with these militias, and when you see things happening around that with politics, that starts to, to raise real alarm bells. And I don't know if that can be solved with rhetoric. I'm not saying it has to be solved with violence, 
but I do hope that we get to a point because like if even if Biden gets elected, do you think the people who really believe that Trump is right are, are going to change how they feel or go away? We got to find a better way in America. And I, I don't know which institution or what system is going to put that back to the way we knew it. Matter of fact, I don't think it's going to go back to the way we knew it. So I'm not Nostradamus, so I don't know how that's going to turn out. Um, I really don't. Well, this has been a good start, though, my friend. As always, thank you so much for the time. Uh, and uh, I will put all of the, the links in the show notes uh, so that people can follow along and then uh, check out the voter guide and all of that stuff. My friend, have a great week. Eric, I always appreciate it. And uh, for our first, you know, go around uh, solo, I, I enjoyed it very much. Uh, and I look forward to future conversations. All right, my friend, be well. Thanks a lot, Eric. And there he goes. As always, if you like what we're doing, you can put this podcast into a playlist on Spotify and like and review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. My name is Eric Alcorn. His name is John Heiner. And this is Behind the Headlines.